sweet of him. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. Zencaster is a modern web-based solution for high-quality audio and video podcast production. With a full suite of professional tools, Zencaster allows podcasters to quickly and seamlessly record their guests remotely and produce their podcasts in studio quality. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Support for that UFO podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who are the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offer precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive listener offer just for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code ANDYUFO at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free worldwide shipping with promo code ANDYUFO. Manscaped engineered the ultimate groin and body trimmer by focusing on intelligent functionality and incredibly comfortable grooming experience. Their fourth-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce any close encounters thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. I now feel confident shaving my Tic Tacs. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code ANDYUFO at manscaped.com. This is David Marler, UFO researcher, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. I've got to say a much anticipated That UFO Podcast. Over 200 questions were submitted for myself and Dan to pour through and we've done that over the last few days with the intent to really make the most of this one. I said thank you to the listeners for making the first interview with this gentleman possible and I hope this is giving something back to you, the audience, by kind of turning it over to you and allowing you to ask the questions. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome back to that UFO podcast, Mr. Luis Elizondo. Lou, how are we doing today? Andy, thanks for having me. I'm doing just fine. Appreciate it very much, all the hard work you and Dan and others are doing. Um, really good to be here. Well, listen, I'm asking you how you're doing, and we're going to kick off with a question from Jean-Francois, um, who has asked Lou, at the end of your first interview with Andy in February, you very candidly said you were tired, and a lot has happened since then, and continues to happen in the background. So on that note, Jean-Francois would like to know, how are you now, and what is still driving you forward? Oh, great. Well, uh, thank you for asking. Um, I'm doing just fine. Um, I had some medical issues the last six months I really had to address. Uh, you know, the, the bottom line is, uh, I'm, I'm not getting any younger. I tell people this is, this is gray, not, uh, not blonde. And so, uh, as a result, you know, you, you tend to do things, um, thinking that, uh, you're still, you know, in the same shape you used to be in. Um, and, uh, I was, there was a time, you know, in my life for a long period of time, I was extremely, I was very fit, um, because of my job, the nature of job I had. And you just kind of assume you're always going to be that healthy. And as you get older, you begin to realize, whoa, wait a minute. 
you know, you wake up out of bed and all of a sudden something hurts that you didn't know you, you know, you even had before, right? You're like, well, wow, where's that pain coming from? And, or you, you maybe spend a little bit too much time now in the bathroom when you're like, Hey, what, what's going on with me? <laughs> right. So all sorts of weird things happen when you're getting older. Um, so, but personally I'm feeling good. Um, I had a really close scare there with potential cancer. We're still not completely out of the woods yet, but things are looking really good. Um, found out, um, besides the spot on my kidney now, apparently there, there may be one on my lung, uh, but they don't know quite what it is. Um, no, I don't want anybody to panic because, you know, we did a lot more tests to do. Um, hopefully it winds up being just like the kidney spot, nothing. Um, now professionally, there's a lot going on. I'm very tired, um, but tired in a good way um, because every day we're making tremendous progress forward. And hopefully that's something we can talk about a little bit on your show. Yeah, that's that's good to hear about your your health issues, and you've been very honest and open about those as well, which which no one expects you to to go into detail on. So thank you for that. Um, next question from John. John had a couple of questions that we just couldn't uh, pick through, so we've we've got a few for you now. I'm sure, as I've seen, you've got your copy of Ross Coulthard's In Plain Sight book, and uh, Ross emphasised that you worked at the DOD's SAPCO, that's the Special Access Program Central Office, and that. He's going. I'm going to paraphrase here, but you would have seen all SAPs, and you would know if UAP were a black uh, project, you know, thing. What can Lou say about his time and responsibilities at SAPCO, and are Rossi's statements true? Yeah, so SAPCO is actually subordinate to um, OUSDI, the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. It's the undersecretary responsible for all of intelligence throughout the entire department. Uh, and they do a lot of work also with um, the other the intelligence agencies. Let's not forget that a lot of the the agencies out there, like National Security Agency, Defense Intelligence Agency, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, NRO Agency, they all fall under the cognizance of DoD for a lot of their missions. And as a result, the USDI is responsible for knowing everything and anything that they're doing. It's it's law, in fact. And the SAPCO office is part of that capability that manages the SAPs under the OUSDI. So yes, I had a very close working relationship with them. I managed SAPs myself. Uh, and um, there were several meetings where I would go in with new information regarding ATIP and saying, hey, does anybody know what's going on? And the response was, no, big goose egg, nothing. Um Furthermore, what I'll share, which I haven't shared publicly, is that the the former USDI before he came became the DNI, Director of National Intelligence, his name was Jim Clapper, General Clapper. He was also the director of several organizations before. A very good man. Um, polit- politics aside, you know, I don't take sides politically. I don't care if you're, you're liberal or conservative or anything in between. The bottom line, he was he was a very, very good intelligence officer and a very good leader when he was in. Um, and what I will say is that he was, he was I, I won't go into a whole lot of detail, but he expressed to me, if at some point you ever get a chance to talk to him, uh, he, in front of my my wife, he said, look, I'm, I'm really glad, Lou, you were doing this. I'm really glad we had a had a UFO program. It's something that we, we should have done. Um, so uh, regarding, um, regarding SAPs, yeah, I, I would have, I would have, no, I wouldn't necessarily be managing all those SAPs, but I, I would have access uh, because of my quote unquote need to know. There's several things that, uh, and I, I know that we're going to go short here because you want to answer a lot of questions, but it's a little bit of a convoluted process. Um, SAPs are, so you have confidential information, secret information, top secret information, SCI, uh, sense of compartment and information, and then you have special access programs. 
And those are compartmentalized for a reason. Uh, think of um, think of bulkheads on a ship. So if a ship were to take a torpedo or damage uh, on the side, you could seal up the bulkheads and and minimize the you know the, the damage, right? So you, the rest of the ship doesn't flood. Same thing with saps. The saps are very sensitive programs. The reason why you compartmentalize them is because you you don't want to jeopardize the the you don't want to jeopardize the operation or capability uh, because it is that sensitive. And so you, you compartmentalize these things kind of like a bulkhead of a ship. Um, there are, yeah, I'm sorry to say this. Um, there are master lists of all SAPs that certain people have access to. Uh, there's also oversight committees. So if you talk to, to Mr. Chris Mellon, my, my dear friend and colleague, he was the SAPCO. He was the guy who managed all saps. In fact, those sapcos answered to to Chris Mellon. Chris Mellon at the time was a was a, a deputy secretary of defense at the time, and they he was the boss. And he'll tell you the same thing. Um, there, there these UFO programs that if if they existed besides ATIP um, were probably being run rogue. They, there was no oversight. They were being run in a way that was uh, out of mind, uh, out of sight, so to speak, and. Um, that's problematic because we we are an organization that's that's built on rules and regulations and policies and, and doctrine, and we have oversight for a reason. And so, um, when the people who are responsible for knowing that information are deliberately kept out of the loop, then then that that's that's a significant problem. That's a legal issue, right? People can go to jail for that. So I, I don't know how to emphasize enough that that if someone was running a rogue operation. Um, you know, that's, that's a big no, no. I mean, I had, at least I had people in the chain of command at the secretary defense level, uh, and, and his echelons right below that, that were in the loop. They, they knew what I was doing and I had that blessing to continue doing it. It wasn't that Lou Elizondo was just running some rogue operation. Every time I asked and, and, and had the authority to say, Hey, look, I need to know what you guys are working on. Uh, there, people were shrugging their shoulders, say, Lou, we have no idea what you're talking about. And that's true, not just with with Chris Mellon. He'll tell you the same thing, but so will Jim Clapper, uh, who was uh, eventually the dir- the director of national intelligence. Excellent, thanks, Lou. Um, on your last podcast with Christina Gomez, hello to Christina. Um, you mentioned that slide nine could very well be related to Havana syndrome, something we've heard a little bit about in the news at various times. Wouldn't this mean that in this case, the phenomenon is potentially an active threat with intent to harm? And I would like to add to that, Lou, personally, are we in any imminent danger as a species from the phenomenon? Wow. Uh, Shucks. So let me see if I can clarify so people don't take things out of context. Um, Signature is a signature. Okay. So uh, there are a lot of things that uh, let's take, for example, a dog barking and a coyote uh, barking in the distance. Both are a type of dog, right? Um, different, different species, but both are, are a type of dog. Um, and they sound pretty similar. Um, and they kind of biologically work the same way. Um, I, I'm going to be very careful not to elaborate at all on Havana syndrome. It's not my forte. Um, I will let those people in the government who are working it continue to do what they need to do. And I certainly don't want to interfere with that. But what I meant to say is that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's some interesting what 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 we would perceive we myself and several colleagues perceive some interesting correlations there i'm not prepared to elaborate right now um i, I simply cannot um but um 
you know, it, it, it's, it's a fair question. It's a great question and a question that I think, you know, will will be addressed in time. Um, what I don't want people to think is that Havana syndrome it equals UAP. Mm, not necessarily. We're not there yet. Um, you know, there does seem to, to be some correlation, but we, we don't – we're not prepared right now to, to really to go into any detail because right now a lot of it's just theoretical. Sure. And on the second part of that question, separate to Havana syndrome, is there anything in, in the meantime, in the last few months or years that would indicate there is any potential threat from the phenomenon? Well, you know, th- therein lies the question, right? Because people always say I'm fear mongering and they're not listening to the words I'm saying. You know, potential threat is not the same as hostile intent, right? Uh, you know, if, if, if I walk under a ladder, there's a potential threat there. The ladder could collapse on top of me. It's not a deliberate act by, by the ladder. It's just a function of, of, you know, safety, right? If I, if I drive in my car to the, to the grocery store, there's a potential threat that I could get a flat tire. I could, uh, run over a nail. I could get into a car accident. There are, that's why we have airbags in cars and why we have seatbelts and, 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 and things like that. Um, but it doesn't mean it's hostile intent. And that's the real question people want to know. And I think that's what people are getting confused. There's always a potential threat. The fact that we have an information gap, an intelligence gap, is a threat. Now, it doesn't mean it's necessarily an intentional threat or a hostile threat or hostile intent. Um, it just means that when you don't have, in the absence of information, it's 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 a, a, it, it's a anything goes game, uh, meaning... You don't know. And so it is incumbent upon the national security apparatus to make sure we do know. And anything that we don't know is, yes, a potential threat because we simply have no idea what the capabilities are. We've seen some of the capabilities. We have no idea the intent. And therefore, to assume or presume everything is kumbaya is foolish. It's crap. Every time people come out and say, oh, peace and love, and they want everything, you know, you don't know that. So please stop that garbage. You don't know that's your personal experience because every time someone says that, there's another person who had a terrifying experience. Look, biological effects are real. I'm not going to go into much detail than that. There's a reason why we had a DIRD done by, by, by Dr. Kit Green, which by the way, who I highly respect is an incredible human being. Um, there's a reason why we had a DIRD looking at biological effects, right? Um, you know, you may think it's all great and, and kumbaya, but then talk to somebody who maybe had a little bit different experience and now is suffering from it. You know, I, I don't think we have the right to simply lay a blanket statement saying it's not a threat. And I also don't think we have the right to lay a blanket statement to say that it is a threat. We simply don't know. And I think, you know, the, what we need to do is approach this with, with due diligence, right? Cautious optimism, but at the same time, remain guarded. We don't know what we're dealing with. You know, just because an ice cream man comes by selling ice cream, do you let your kid go out by itself, by her, his or herself and, and, and go for a ride with the ice cream man? No, probably not. Not these days. Right. So, you know, one thing is to go out there with your kid and buy a popsicle. Another thing is to say, Hey, get a little Tommy, go ahead. And, and, you know, we'll see you next week. Um, I, I don't subscribe to that. I, I think I, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there that are very emotional. I think there's a lot of people that have their own opinions and that's great and I respect it. But don't don't state your opinion as fact and that everybody now has to to somehow acknowledge that that your opinion is a fact and that you're that way of thinking is the only way. That's absolute crap. We have looking now I'll tell you right now with countries we have right now, we have countries that we were at war with that were our enemies in the past that now are our friends, right? 
So relationships change, relationships change. And there's also countries out there that we were very close with at one point that were our friends, like Iran, that aren't our friends. Now they're hostile. They actually want to see our, our destruction. So, so for someone to simply blatantly make a, a statement like these things are all peace, love, and happiness, you know, I, I, I think is misinformed. I, I think, and worst of all, I, I think when they try to influence others to, you know, adopt their position, you know, I, 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 I think it's wrong. I think it's dangerous, to be honest with you. Now, moving on, radar upgrades and nuclear assets have been potentially inciting incidents for UAP. What are some of the other things that may have triggered or further exposed the phenomenon to your knowledge? Wow. Well, you know, there's another little tidbit I gave out last time, and I think people also took that and kind of ran with it when I said that there's Someone talked about a sensor. Uh, uh, where would I place sensors to detect UA- UAPs? This was on Christina's show. And uh, I said, "There's you only need one. Um, and I mean that. Uh, I just, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail right now because we're in the process of, of looking at that uh, as an option. Um, there, there are some very intriguing signatures that if you know what to look for and how to look for them, um, you know, we stand a really, really, really good chance of, of being able to collect data and, and the data in a way that gives us a lot more fidelity than what we're dealing with now, possibly even be able to predict. So so that's what we're doing right now. It's a, it's a bit in its planning stages and nascent stages. So I, I don't want to I don't want to tip my hand too much. Um, you know, I'm not trying to tease anybody, but I'm trying to give as much information as I can without compromising an effort that is, is currently being developed, right? I don't want to compromise that because it, it there's a lot of pieces to it. And those pieces, some of those pieces want discretion. They don't necessarily want to advertise that 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 they're participating or want to help in this effort. And I have to respect that. So so until it decides we decide it can become public, we're we're gonna keep it kind of quiet. Um, you know, obviously the big concern is is the nuclear connection. You know, that is that is that is concerning. If if it was anybody else out there that had the ability to interfere with our nuclear capabilities, yet kind of a problem, you know, and by the way, other countries feel the same way. It's not just us. Um, and you know, there's, it turns out that if, if you know what to look for, um, you know, we, we have a really good chance of, of being able to once and for all, um, you know, collect that hard, hard data, that hard evidence. And by the way, we're not years and years away from that. I, I mean, I'm, we're planning on, on executing this uh, in, in, in a phase one approach, probably within the next six months. So, you know, like I said, when I said there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes, there are really a lot of things happening behind the scenes. Well, just to follow up on that, this is a question from both Dan and myself. Now, we were talking and we have recently spoken to Avi Loeb and about the Galileo project. And we had a question, Lou, for you that if you were Avi and his team at the project, is there a particular location and sensor system that you'd recommend to enable them to consistently observe these craft? And we put, for example, electroacoustic microphones tracking infrasound. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. Infrasound is one one certainly uh, interesting uh, potential. We use infrasound for other things as well. Um, there's another way that is even simpler. Um, in fact, it's it's uh, it's absurdly simple. If I were to mention it, I think a lot of people have kind of that, you know, a duh moment and say, wow, you're right. That's uh, that's that's a pretty easy way to do it uh, and, and cost effective way. Um, you know, my hope is that we can continue working with with the we're in the process now of developing some some really high performing teams. 
on the academic side, the scientific side, technological side, uh, governmental side. Again, there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes, and I think the public's going to be very surprised and, and probably, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty excited once some of this information starts getting into the public realm because um, it means real results. It means real results that satisfy the itch that a lot of people have out there, uh, and that's what we're trying to do. You know, but again, it's a process, right? It's it's not just I'm I'm not going to be like everybody else out there and just, you know, start making all these proclamations just to get a couple extra clicks on a, on a, on a YouTube video. You know, I'm, I'm a former intelligence professional. We do things, you know, deliberately methodically and, and only when the time is right, you know, do we, do we execute? Um, timing is, timing is everything. And so, uh, you know, I, I also don't want to make grandiose claims and then there's a slight hiccup and someone says, you said in three months we'd have this. And yeah, you know, it's now four months. Uh, you know, I, I've learned my lesson on that. I've been burned by that before. So that's why I rather um, under promise and over deliver. Um, that's why I, I prefer to to kind of stay in the shadows as long as I can until, you know, we're ready for the next thing. But one thing people should know is that when we're, when we're the quiet like this is when most of the action's happening. This is when really a lot of the hard work's being done, working with my colleagues at Skyfor, working with our friends in the U.S. government, working with our friends in the academia and scientific community. There's a lot of things happening right now. This is a very exciting time. In fact, I would submit to you, we're probably doing more now behind the scenes than we ever have before. And that's really good to hear. And, and talking of behind the scenes now, this is a question from Tim and Tim just puts it all out there. He wants to know what is currently the leading hypothesis supported by the facts regarding the phenomenon, such as self-replicating AI or ultra-terrestrial, et cetera? You know, it depends on who you ask. There's, there's split camps. Um, there are people, I, I think most people at this point now realize in the government more than 50%, which is great, right? Anybody who's involved in this recognizes this is probably not foreign adversarial and it's not ours. Um, so, so the good news is there's this recognition that, yeah, this, this is probably option, option C right now, the meaning it's something or someone else other than us. Um, the problem is that there's no, there's no real consensus uh, beyond that. It's, there's not, uh, you know, these are interdimensional or these are extraterrestrial from another planet or they're here from this planet. Um, there, there simply isn't any consensus on that. Um, we don't have the fidelity of data to make a determination of that. Um, I think historically, when you were to talk to somebody uh, in my position in the government, they would immediately say these things are from another planet, another world. Um, but that was really prior to our understanding of, of, quantum physics and, and and what we're now beginning to observe in the laboratory. Um, Jacques Vallée has submitted uh, quite publicly that these are truly interdimensional. The problem is when you say the word interdimensional, it kind of has that woo effect, right? Everybody says, ooh, interdimensional. What does that mean, right? You think of cheesy 1970s movies and, you know, the creature from the eighth dimension and, and whatnot. In reality, a dimension is simply just another reality that is beyond our immediate perception. Um, so, so, uh, the electromagnetic spectrum, um, for example, um, you, you are, you are able to, to look at things, uh, in, for example, ultraviolet or infrared that the human eye normally can't pick up. Um, that's an example of, of perhaps interdimensional, um, could also be where we look at time. For example, uh, we have three dimensions, physical dimensions that we live in a three dimensional space, right? X axis, Y axis, and a Z axis. And then time is kind of this function fourth uh, dimension. 
but time isn't a three-dimensional space like space is, um, or is it? And so uh, if you and I were having this conversation um, right here and right now, we, we can communicate. But if you had the ability where time itself was maybe a fourth dimension, where you could actually, it was also like a three-dimensional space. Um, if you and I were sitting right here, but you were sitting here five minutes from now or five minutes ago, we'd be like ships passing the night. We'd, we'd never be able to see each other communicate. Um, and it's only when you're right here right now, do we get a chance to interact? Um, so that's one of the hypotheses has been, been, been postulated. But at the end of the day, your guess is as good as mine. We, we simply don't know yet. And, and this is what is so intriguing and fascinating about this enigma because there's a lot of opinions out there, but there's not a whole lot of data. Um, there's the data that we have suggests several hypotheses as possible. Luke, can, can I ask respectfully, and I'm going off the script here, why is my guess as good as yours? Because I don't think anyone listening to this would subscribe to the idea that my guess or Dan's guess or someone else's should or could be better than yours? Um, because when it comes to that specific pe- – look, when you are – you're watching a basketball game. You could be the best coach in the world or you could simply sit there on the sidelines and watch the game. But until that player takes the shot, um, no one knows if that ball is actually going into the hoop until the ball goes into the hoop, Right. And if you were to see a player laying up and ready to take a shot and press pause uh, and ask anybody in the crowd or anybody in the, uh, maybe one of the coaches or anybody or the players even, ask them if that ball's going to make it into the hoop, um, no one can tell you a definitive answer, not even the players until that ball goes into the hoop. And, you know, al- although we have some, some strong inclinations of what this could be, we still don't know for sure, and so it's it's inappropriate for for me to say, yeah, I you know what I have the you're right I have the answer. So you should all listen to me. Remember, remember we just talked about people who assume that these things are all hunky dory and there's no threat, or people who say they're nothing but a threat. Right? Either way, it's speculation, and and I, we have to avoid that. I don't care even if if you recognize me as an expert in this field. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to tell you that, yes, it's this way, because tomorrow if we get more data that suggests something else, then we, we have to be prepared to, to accommodate that data. It's, 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 I'm, I'm the last guy you want me to tell you my opinion, because I, I don't want to sway the jury. That's not my job. My job is to collect the data and provide it to you so you guys can make an informed decision, not me. And this is my my one of my great frustrations. People think that I'm holding out because, you know, I'm trying to either string you along or because, you know, for whatever reason, I, who the hell knows? The bottom line is I don't want to be insincere with you. I don't want to I don't want to lie to you. I don't want to be like a bunch of these other characters in, in ufology that are trying to peddle their, their their damn narrative. That's crap. That's not what I'm gonna do. And if and if that's what people expect, then you know what? I'll I'll quit now. And and you guys Go do what you want to do, you know, and, and good luck because th- that's not me. You know, I, I, I took a commitment to always, always tell the truth. When, and, and when it comes to this topic, it, I, can't, I can't deviate from that. This is no different than the work I was doing chasing terrorists or spies. You know, I, I, I promised you guys in the beginning I would tell you the truth. This is the truth. We don't have the full answer yet. And, and if that makes you uncomfortable or some, not you, of course, but anybody out there uncomfortable, then my suggestion is, you know what? Get out of this topic for five years. Go take up a hobby. Go play the piano. Go pick up the violin or the guitar and check back in in five years 
and maybe we'll have some more answers for you. You know, but the problem is that we have spent so much time in the past telling every each ourselves that the government has the answers. You know, look, the government's wrong an awful lot. You know, look what's going on in Afghanistan right now. Look at COVID, right? Look at all the things that we get wrong all the time. You know, you, you think the government's going to have a definitive answer on this, the greatest question to, to face mankind since we crawl out of a cave? Come on, give me a break. Anybody who says they got the answer, they're full of shit. I mean, that, that's – I'm sorry. Forgive me, but I, I get I get frustrated because we have to let the scientific process work. We have to. We have to. I know it's tempting not to, but I, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice, and I would be doing you a disservice if I told you anything other than – the, the facts. And, and that's, that's how I feel. I mean, maybe if you, you were to come to my house one day and we had a beer privately and we're just chatting outside and I'll give you my opinion, but, but I'm not prepared to provide my opinion publicly. It's, it's not helpful to, it's not helpful to the conversation. No, that's that's fair. And my takeaway from that was a Schrodinger's basketball or Schrodinger's tic tac. I'm not sure which one to go with, but uh, I'll ask you next up from Todd. Uh, Todd wants to know that Lou has said that all of the videos uh, he's seen, the gimbal, flare, and go fast, are probably the least compelling, and there are many more compelling ones. He's also said in, in previous interviews that there is a reason why you, you chose those three videos, and he would like to know um, if he was you or I was you, Lou, sitting in a room with all of that footage, what makes a video a prime candidate for release? And I've added in there, for example, is 23 minutes too long? What a great question, man. Wow. Thank you. I haven't been asked that. Um, boy, okay. So let, let me uh, let me see if I can thread the needle on this one. Um, what makes something compelling? Well, I would say fidelity, proximity, telemetry, and other attributes that can help you determine the performance characteristics of something. And then once you have that data, you compare that to data you already have, what we call blue force data, data that we have of our own capabilities. And then we compare that to red force data, the capabilities of our known air, of our own enemies technology and capabilities. And if you're still left with a delta, right, uh, a difference, a significant difference, then that's that's usually a pretty good indicator. You know, um, a lot of times when you see something performing in a way that's been described already by multiple pilots and, and multiple military and intelligence officials, and all of a sudden you see it on camera for the first time, you say, yeah, that's, that's performing exactly as they described. And that's really peculiar because for example, here's an aircraft, right? We, we expect an airplane to fly, you know, in a direction like this. You don't expect an aircraft to fly in a direction like this. It can it can point up and fly up, but it's not going to move backwards and forwards up and down like that. Um, that's not typical fixed wing aircraft uh, performance. Now, big of course, a V twenty two, you know, the the Osprey, and you've got these other you know rotary wing capabilities, like helicopters. Um, but they're also not going to fly at Mach three to Mach five to Mach eight. You know, uh, they, they're going to hover. Uh, they're not going to. They're not going to fly really. Go from a hover to, to standstill to very very fast. So those are some of the things. Now, as far as a twenty three minute video, um, I've said for the record before, I cannot elaborate. Um, but there are people in the Pentagon that are aware of that video that have seen that video uh, because they have uh, corresponded with me about that video. Uh, when I was in ATIP. So, so it's not gone and lost forever. It's absolutely there. 
And at some point, if people are asked to testify, you know, in Congress, they're going to have to admit the truth that, that they've seen it too. Um, you know, 23 minutes is an awful lot of time. Uh, we've been now chatting with each other for a little bit more than 23 minutes. And I think we've covered a lot of ground. Imagine um, watching a, a video of a UAP for that long. I mean, that's a lot of time to collect data, right? Especially if it's 23 minutes of pure sci-fi, I believe is one of the quotes I've seen. So yeah, that, that would be. Um, Bob would like to know, on a few of the podcasts you've appeared on, you've pulled out a booklet that helps pilots identify aircraft. Do you know of something similar that shows different shapes and sizes of UAPs that that have been reported throughout history? Does something like that exist? Yeah, it does, actually. Um, Project Blue Book and, and some other ones actually had a, a listing of the shape of, of typical UAPs. In fact, the CIA had some documentation on it as well, from lenticular to more cylindrical to triangular um, yeah, in fact, there was a uh, there was an Air Force uh, investigations handbook that actually um, asked the investigators to make sure that they describe size and shape. And there was a little bit of a, a cheat sheet on what you know how, how to describe these these particular shapes. So yeah, that did, that that did exist. Um, is it still in use? I, I think there's probably a new iteration of that. That's being developed for for the Navy and for the Department of Defense. I can't comment on that because I don't know. I don't know precisely. I do know that new policies and rules and regulations have been drafted and been promulgated, but I don't know if they include the the, the historical you know shape of the craft descriptions. Lou, I've, I've watched quite a lot of your interviews. Um, I know many people have, and you give up a lot of your time. I think one of the best ones I've seen maybe ever was on Terry Vert's podcast. Um, I thought that was fascinating, especially as he came at it from a point of view of not necessarily having a UFO background. And um, you gave a lot of really intriguing answers. Um, one of them was to do with the potential, let me get the word in right here, um, missions or purpose of craft um for example saucers may do one thing triangles may do another slightly bigger craft may do something else and, and so on um i would like to know do you see any particular craft potentially having a relationship with others for example are tic tacs something totally different to triangles and saucers no we think they're using the same technology um they're just used for different applications and there's a very um there's going to be some more information on that in, in the near term. Uh, there, there's going to be some, some more data um, that, that will be provided. Um, there, there is a correlation that we believe, and we believe that it's the same technology. And can I, Go ahead. And can I just ask, is that an assumption that it's the same technology? Because well, for you to sure, know isn't it's the everything same technology powering each Everything's craft. an assumption, right? But if you know anything about me, I don't like to assume or presume. I, I like to have facts. And so based upon the observations uh, and what we do know, um, that I think is a, is a pretty good, pretty good summation. Um, I think I think we're fairly confident in that, that each one of these are, are using uh, the same, if not similar, uh, propulsion. I'll take that one to the bank. I'm happy with that. Um, Ian had a question that straight away myself and Dan were a bit blown away by. It's very simple. Uh, Lou, how has your view of death changed since your time with ATIP? It hasn't. Um, you know, uh, I 
I will, I will share this personal experience with you. Um, I've, I've, I've had my fill of, of, of death up close and personal. Um, but for me, one of the profound moments was, um, when I was two years old, my, my mother, um, we were watching a movie and I remember it was some silly movie. And and I I guess in the movie, the shark had eaten a a pet dog and um, I was shocked. And I asked my mom, I'm like, Oh, what happened? She's like, well, you know, son, the the dog was eaten by the shark. It it, it died. And I said, well, does, does everything else die? She said, yeah. And I said, well, mom, you're, I mean, your mom, you're not going to die. Right. She said, no, no, one day, one day I'm going to die too. And from that moment on, I lived every day of my life knowing that one day my mother would be gone and uh, and not be here on this earth. And it frightened me. Um, and it was always kind of gnawing in the back of my head. And I always wanted to make sure that, you know, my mother, my mother's the one who escorted me over the threshold into life. And I wanted to make sure that I was there always at the very end to escort her over the threshold into into death, into, into the next transition. And... Um, I had that opportunity. My mother passed away in my arms um, and I saw her take her last breath. And I knew within 30 seconds before her passing that she was going to die. Don't ask me how I knew. Um, and everybody in the room uh, saw her and she opened her eyes and uh, it was gone. Whatever the essence of what was my mother, you could see it and feel it leave. And what was left behind was just a shell, just, just a vessel. And uh, you hear that a lot. It seems kind of cliche until you experience it and you're like, wow, I, that's what it's like. Um, I've never been afraid of death. I've been afraid of death for my loved ones. As for me, I don't give a damn. You know, I, like I said, unless you're shooting at me, I'm, I'm not going to really be very nervous. And even then, you know, I'm, a, I'm an old guy. I've lived, lived a great life. Um, when my time comes, it comes. That's why I'm not, you know, really sweating my, my physical issues right now because Look, I'll do what I can, but at the end of the day, when when my number's up, my number's up, um, you know. And I think death is a, is a transition into something else. You know, energy can't really be created or destroyed; it just just transforms. And um, I, I've seen enough of that where I don't need to be convinced of that. Um, I don't need religion. I don't need mystics or anybody else to to tell me that. I I lived through it, um, and the ATIP program hasn't change that. I will tell you that my my brief exposure to the OSAP program definitely opened my mind to some new new uh, new hypothesis um, involving human beings and 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 us you know inhabiting the earth. Um, you know there were a lot of things that occurred under Bigelow's watch and and, and the previous director that you know, frankly, can't be explained through through modern day science. Now, it doesn't mean it won't be explained in 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, but right now it remains a mystery. Um, you know, the, the the ranch that Brandon Fugel has now, you know, that's real. There's 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 stuff there. Um, I, I'm not going to elaborate what it is because I simply don't know. I don't think anybody right now, that's why we're trying to figure it out. Uh, that's certainly why we were trying to figure it out back in the back in the day. Um you know, let me let me preface by saying, really, my focus was more on the UAP piece, even though I was tangentially involved with the OSAP stuff. Um, I'll let the OSAP people, you know, talk about that because they're more qualified to talk about it. You know, that's that's my perspective, anyways. No, thank you for that answer. Let's rock. 
Lou. Uh, so we'll try and get through a few questions quick fire just to make the, the most of these last few minutes. I appreciate the time you've given us. Now, the next question, again, is, is quite a personal one. So I appreciate it. This is from Charlie. The sixth observable is known to be biological effects. Lou, have you personally been impacted by these? Yes. Not me as an individual, but yes, I've been impacted by them because of friends. I know, and I won't elaborate. Sure. John wants to know, did ATIP have interactions with the Department of Energy? Uh, tangentially. Um, I think those relationships are, are much better now. Um, that's, that's, that's an area that we definitely needed to explore more, and it was very hard, to, very hard for us to get in there. Robert wants to know, if you could travel back in time, time being relative, of course, as we've discussed, would you choose not to get involved and be exposed to the knowledge that you have of the phenomenon? Well, uh, ask me that in five years. <laughs> uh, I don't know. There's days I wake up every day thinking, what the hell am I doing? Because all the, the hate that I get, and I'm like, you know, <laughs> you know what? Live, live in darkness. I don't care. <laughs> you know, leave me the hell alone. I'm going to go and, 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 you know, turn wrenches and, and, and you know, build sports cars. Uh, then there's, of course, other days where, where um, you know, my commitment to service um, overrides everything. And, and, uh, it's, it's important because when I look back in the last three years and see what collectively we've been able to accomplish on this topic, uh, it's pretty, I think pretty extraordinary. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to take credit for it because it's, it's always a team effort. Um, that credit goes to folks like Chris Mellon and, and people that are still in the government doing this and the task force and folks like you and the media and, and folks that are your listeners really that, that have an appetite and are willing to, to have this conversation for once, you know? So, um. Yeah, ask me in five years. Louise wants to know, are you aware of any Vatican involvement with the subject of UAP? I'm going to let the Vatican answer that question um, out, of due, out of respect for the Vatican. Um, you know, I, uh, obviously they, they have incredible amount of information and intelligence. Uh, they've been around a long time, a long, long time. Um, it's no secret that I've, I've, spoke to individuals there. Um, so, you know, f- fill in the blank, I guess. Sure. And Lou, final question. This one's from me. Uh, you told me a while ago, uh, very kindly, that your the best depiction of UAP in a movie you had seen was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Can you elaborate on why? Yeah, the third kind. Let's let me make make sure that wouldn't confuse it. It's, it's close encounters of the third kind. It was Steven Spielberg's yes. uh, movie. Um, I was never a sci-fi fan, and I only watched that movie not too long ago, fairly recently, I guess. And I was absolutely amazed until I talked to Jacques Vallée and realized he was the one who helped um, advise Spielberg on that movie, and of course uh, Heineck as well. Um, Heineck has a cameo in that in that movie. Um, then it made sense because I, I could not understand how somebody was able to describe the performance characteristics, the colors, the way they would split up in the sky, the way they would do these weird zigzag patterns, instantaneous acceleration, all the things that we had been observing. And yet this movie came out in 1979, right? So it's like, wow. Okay. We did not have the, the technical capabilities, certainly not the fidelity that we have now. How did you know that? How did you know that that that's what these craft were doing, and 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 Spielberg knew because he had technical advisors who who had been in this project and this effort for a very long time. That's how he knew. So that to me was was very interesting. Um, 
I, I was absolutely floored. I was amazed that Spielberg was ever was able to pull that off the way he did. Um, I have since talked to Jacques, and uh, we kind of chuckle about it now because I, I, I probably should have, you know, not a very good intel officer, I guess, right? I should have put two and two together, um, but I didn't. And uh, it wasn't until uh, until Jacques gave me a bit of an education that I realized, oh, <laughs> so that's how he did it. Um, yeah, I still think it's it's probably one of the best. Um, I, just because I think uh, the depiction uh, at the end of, of how these things were, were operating and maneuvering uh, was 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 right on the money. Excellent, Lou. Um, we've run out of time. Uh, with your blessing, I'd like to put this out as part one with the viewer to in the near future. Andy, you uh, don't hopefully ever before have Christmas, to, if you do have the time, come back on and get through brother, some more. you don't ever have to ask me permission to do anything. Whatever you want to do is fine. Let me know when you want to have this conversation again. Happy to do it. Uh, I'd love to answer all 200 questions if we can, because I know people get mad and say, hey, you didn't, you, you didn't ask Lou this question. You keep asking him the same old questions. Uh, for the record, I don't think you did. Um, but you know, to scratch the itch of some of those out there who, who maybe didn't get their questions um, uh, answered, um, let's let's do this again. Excellent. Lou, thank you very much for your time. It's been great talking yes, to sir. you. Yes, sir. My pleasure as always. Thanks so much. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little bit.
Thank you.